Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian interview series. I'm Fiona Sutherland, dietitian from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I interview dietitians from all over the world who are experts in health at every size, the non-diet approach and mindfulness-based practice. These are a collection of interviews by a dietitian for dietitians and nutritionists so that we can build a strong community of wonderful professionals who share an inclusive vision of well-being for everybody in everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. Welcome back, Mindful Dietitians. Today, I'm chatting with Christy Harrison, fellow dietitian and certified intuitive eating counsellor from New York. You will probably know Christy as the hostess with the mostest from the amazing Food Psych podcast, where she has interviewed leaders from all over the world who are active in health at every size and body positive spaces. Christy, interestingly, has a background in journalism before she turned her hand to nutrition studies, where she's really made a name for herself as being a tenacious and incredible advocate for all bodies and eating disorder recovery. You can find Christy all over social media and the links are all on The Mindful Dietitian. As you'll hear, Christy has some wonderful words of wisdom from the lived perspective of someone who has moved from a disconnected and disordered relationship with food to intuitive eating and yes, all whilst being a dietitian. She also shares with us some reflections on how we can find ourselves in restrict binge cycles in ways that are really not about food. She answers the question, can I do both weight loss and the non-diet approach and also the unit that she would be in charge of if she ran a dietetics course. So you're going to have to listen all the way through to get to that and it is really fantastic. If you're looking for some great in-person or online workshops or otherwise just some maybe some resources that you can share with colleagues or other health professionals, you'll find a whole bunch on the Mindful Dietitian website. I'm gradually, bit by bit, getting around to adding all sorts of fact sheets and resources and would really welcome you to share anything of your own, specifically in the non-diet approach, health at every size, eating disorder recovery and mindfulness that you're happy to share with others. All non-diet approach workshops for 2017 in Australia and for this year, New Zealand are listed on the website. So Fiona Willer and myself, we hope to meet you there. Okay, so let's get into the main event. Here's my chat with Christy Harrison. And a big good morning to my lovely and wonderful, very talented friend and colleague, Christy Harrison, who I'm speaking with. I'm in Melbourne and Christy is in Brooklyn, New York. And it's such a massive pleasure to have you here, Christy. So good morning and good evening for you. Yes, good morning to you. I am so happy to be here. So as, as you will all be aware, Christy has an amazing podcast called Food Psych. And if you have been living under a rock for approximately <laughs> the past, is it four years now, Christy, you've been running it? It is. Yeah. I, I started recording it four years ago. I think I launched about three and a half-ish. So, um, but yeah, September of 2013 was our official launch date. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. How You know, it's just, it's 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 really survived the you know the test of lots of um, lots of different movements um, and lots of changes I guess within our profession over those years hasn't it? 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's really interesting to, to listen back to the old episodes and see mm-hmm. how it's evolved, you know, and like hear the, the movement I did through, you know, eating disorder recovery work, really becoming rooted in body positivity and health at every size. And, you know, I think that's a journey that so many dietitians and other health professionals go on. So it's kind of cool to hear my own evolution in that way too. Of course, there's some cringeworthy moments as well. I'm like, oh, <laughs> why did I say that? You know, but someone once said, you know, if you're not embarrassed by your old work, you're not growing. And that's, that's kind of tr- how I try to see it, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's good. Okay. Well, that, that completely makes me feel better about um, <laughs> those probably uh, hundreds of cringeworthy moments I can remember, not only in my early career, but, you know, kind of recently too. You know, those moments oh, yeah. when you're sitting in a conference or um, I even had it at, at the binge eating disorder conference when, where I met you last year and mm-hmm. uh, you know, you'd be sitting in sessions and someone incredible, like maybe calm and cool or, you know, those, those really amazing people who we heard speaking would be talking about, um, you know, maybe um, activism or, or intersectionality and, it, and just say something in a way that you hadn't really thought about before. And it's like, Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, I know it's, it's, uh, you know, we're always growing and evolving and kind of learning to do better. So it's, yeah, ongoing process. Absolutely. And we can only do that through being open to learning. So, Mm -hmm. yes. So um, back to food psych. One question I really wanted to ask you about your podcast is you start, you start off with a very interesting question. And what is that question? I say, tell, you, tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Now, I absolutely love this question. And I'm curious to know, what did, did you start asking it right from the start? Or was it something that you started somewhere along the way? I, I started asking a version of it right from the start. I actually, when I first started the podcast, my intro, because I recorded them in person, and my little hook at the beginning was that I had people bring in a favorite food of theirs, like mm. something that really represented something to them, maybe from childhood or a food that they felt like they had had a complex history with, and they brought it in and we ate it together and talked about their feelings about the food. Mm-hmm. And then we sort of jumped back in time to talk about their Um, relationship with food growing up and, you know, how they sort of came to have that relationship with that particular food and with food in general. And it sort of set the stage for the rest of the conversation. And I just like over the years, of course, as the podcast has evolved, I've listened to and responded to some of the feedback I've gotten. And some people loved the connecting over food um, aspect of it. Some people felt like that was really like lovely and just sort of inspiring as to like, here's a, you know, a person who has a healthy relationship with food, eating cookies and eating hot dogs and eating, you know, all these foods that might be a feared food for someone who's listening, who has an eating disorder or something. Um, but I also got a lot of feedback being like, oh, it's so gross to hear people eating on audio. Please stop. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's and so, a word for that, isn't there? A word for dislike. Yes. Eat. I think there is. And I, mm. I forget what it is, but I know, I know that's a real thing that 
mm-hmm. rub some people the wrong way. And mm-hmm. I'm pretty sensitive to noise, but that never was a thing for me. So it kind of, you know, I, at first I was sort of like, oh, people are so overly sensitive. You know, it just <laughs> it ruffled my feathers to have that <laughs> criticism. But then I started to just sort of hear that and respond to that. And so I ended up doing away with the eating together um, intro part, but I kept the first question of, you know, talking about your relationship with food and childhood, because I think that is such a rich starting point. And I mean, one of the reasons I started the podcast in the first place was to help people feel less alone with their food issues. Um, Because when I was going through my own recovery from disordered eating, I felt very alone and isolated and, you know, frankly, like crazy at times. I felt like Mm. I'm, I'm just, you know, there's something dreadfully wrong with me because I'm doing this stuff with food. And, you know, to discover a community and, and connect with people who also had this history um, was a hugely healing aspect of my recovery. Mm. And actually to hear, I mean, I started listening to podcasts probably in like 2009, 2010, um, when Mark Marin's podcast was starting to become really popular. He's a comedian in the U.S. He um, talks a lot about addiction. He has his own history of addiction and, you know, sobriety now, many years of sobriety under his belt. And he talks about his, you know, past with substances and he talks to guests about their past with substances or their current struggles. And he talks to some really amazing people and celebrities. He like has grown so much over the years and had Barack Obama on the podcast a few years ago. Like, oh, wow. Very great interviewer. And he was so inspiring to me in um, just sort of opening up about these issues that people can be so secretive about. And Mm -hmm. I heard some of his guests share about their food issues and I felt so connected and, and less alone and less ashamed in that process that, you know, I sort of developed this idea, like I'm going to be, Mark Merritt's podcast is called WTF. I was like, I'm going to make the WTF of food and I'm Ah, just going to sort of focus on people's relationships with food specifically, but, you know, how they've evolved throughout the years or sort of opening up about these things that people can be ashamed of and um, just really like shedding some light on those things. And, you know, I think the talking about people's relationships with food growing up is really a way into um, sharing some of those things and helping people feel less alone and feel more connected. Like I've had a number of guests write in and say, you know, that person's experience in childhood was exactly what I went through. And I never connected that to my current struggles with food until I heard that episode. Um. So just kind of like these little personal details, I think really give um, so much, you know, kind of make us feel our common humanity and feel connected through understanding all these ways that diet culture can manifest and influence people or hearing about um, really positive relationships with food that people might have had in the past and just thinking about how that's a possibility, you know? So there's all these ways that I think our relationships with food in childhood really shape who we are and kind of give us some direction for maybe, you know, a place to head back to in recovery as well. Yes, yes, definitely. And it's really interesting that there there's some similarity, isn't there, when a lot of your guests go back and talk about their relationships with food. You know, so, some of your guests have um, have identified that they had quite disconnected relationships with food from a quite young age. And then others have um, identify a really connected and warm relationship with food as a child, but then at some point that was disrupted. So it's, I find it interesting listening, listening back and thinking, oh gosh, like there, if there really is some similarity there. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, it's interesting, these common themes that sort of emerge, right? Because I think many people, you know, and we talk about this a lot as intuitive eating professionals, right? That like intuitive eating is the default state. It's what we're born knowing how to do. Mm-hmm. Having a really connected relationship with food in our bodies is sort of our birthright. Mm-hmm. And for some people, that is that continues through a certain point in childhood. And usually, unfortunately, for most of us in diet culture, there's a certain point at which that's ruptured, you know, whether that's in childhood when someone makes a comment about our weight or we're bullied about weight and body shape, or, you know, a doctor decides that we should go on a diet or our parents who maybe have their own fraught relationships with food um, decide that we should go on a diet. Or maybe it's in adolescence or going away to college where we gain some weight and are uncomfortable with it because of what diet culture tells us about weight gain and what that means. And, you know, so then we're taken away from our authentic, intuitive relationship with food. But it's, it's interesting. And I really love how so many people do have a memory of having a connected relationship with food in childhood. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, hearing the people who maybe don't have any memory of that. And like from the age of three or two or something, we're being um, controlled and coerced through food, but hearing that they were able to sort of recognize that and understand that. And yet, even though they had, you know, no memory of having any connected relationship with food, have been able to get back to it and sort Mm -hmm. of unearth this thing that really was their birthright that was taken away from them so young. Um, And that shows that, you know, there's really hope for everyone, that even people listening who might have no memory of a good relationship with food in childhood can still hold out hope for getting there one day. Yes, I love that because I must say, and I'm sure you would share the same observation, that some of our clients don't have a good memory or or don't have any memory of feeling good about food or feeling good around eating experiences or their body. So to be able to hear other people telling their stories about that, you know, as you say, that that sense of isolation just deepens those wounds really and makes people feel... Um, you know, that they're different and broken somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when we, I guess when we have that narrative, it it makes it difficult to get that sense of that we are fixable. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You know, so, and I guess I I always hold the belief that I, I don't believe anybody is is quote unquote broken. I think we're all just such beautiful whole human beings who've been through such a shitload of crap from this diet culture. Um, But that everybody not only um, can heal, but also deserves to to feel healed, Um, you know, whether that is something that is subjective or objective. So it's, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, uh, it's tricky, but definitely doable. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I think that concept of deserving to be healed is really important too, because I think so many people who are struggling in isolation and shame, it's like the shame people feel about what they're doing makes them feel like they don't deserve love or acceptance or, you know, there must be something wrong with me if I'm binging or if I'm, you know, doing this these weird behaviors with food that I don't quite understand. But actually people are so adaptive. Like we wouldn't stumble on disordered behaviors if they didn't serve us some purpose at some point in life. And unfortunately in diet culture, like those behaviors do serve a purpose, right? Because they stay, they help us, you know, get love and acceptance or get the sort of trappings of love and acceptance, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, that we seek and we're sold this lie, this message from 
every which way in the media and advertising and, you know, culture at large that um, to get acceptance and love, happiness, we have to have a thin body, we have to have a body that looks a certain way, we have to fit this social ideal. So, you know, of course, we're going to be kind of driven towards mm-hmm. manipulating our food or our body size in various different ways. Like that's such a normal, unfortunately, a normal aspect of growing up in diet culture, I think, is, is getting those ideas at a certain point and trying things because we all really do want love and acceptance and we, we're sort of misled into thinking that's the way to get them. Yes. Yes. What a beautiful summary of how diet culture completely fucks you over. (laughs) Completely. And it's all about money, right? It's all about somebody making money off of your unhappiness or dissatisfaction with yourself. Yes. Yes. And and it's interesting that um, when when the when our clients or the groups that we're working with um when they can create some awareness around being being or feeling manipulated um you know the the anger that can arise can be really healthy because rather than directing it inwards towards themselves about uh, some perceived failings or or anger underlying um some some driving of shame we can begin to then direct our anger towards the places that where it deserves to be Hmm. yes getting angry about diet culture and all the lies you've been sold is so healing yes. and i found like that's the the missing piece for some people in eating disorder recovery. Like some treatment centers I know do groups about media literacy and body image. And that's such a huge aspect of people's um, recovery in those settings. But some, sometimes that gets missed. Sometimes that, that kind of messaging um, doesn't come into play and it's all just about, you know, meeting your meal plan and (laughs) jumping through these hoops and then off you go, you know? And I think that's a real, failing on the part of some eating disorder treatment protocols where, you know, we're not looking at these social issues. So that's one of the missions of the podcast too, is to bring light to some of the social justice aspects of um, body size and eating disorders and diet culture to help people get angry and feel that, you know, justified rage towards something outside themselves and not turn it inward in the way that perpetuates the eating disorder. Yeah, well, certainly mission mission is certainly on its way, Christy, because um, mm-hmm. you just have you and your guests have some such interesting conversations around around advocacy and and politics and and feminism and um, all the all the aspects of um, our existence in this community in this society that can really help us to push back against the things that hurt us and then to you know bring bring towards us things that um, help us live whole so yes it certainly helps a lot of people heal that's that's for sure thank you mm-hmm. i appreciate hearing that it's it's funny you know as i'm sure you've felt as a as a podcaster starting out it's like oh, i love just that term sitting thank you. in I'm my podcaster. living room you're a podcaster <laughs> fellow podcaster <laughs> but yeah you know you can be like i'm recording this in my living room is anybody hearing this, you know, like it was so, so mind blowing the first time (laughs) I got an email from a listener I didn't know, you know, and then just to to hear from people around the world who are connecting with these messages. It's pretty cool and powerful. Oh, yes. It's spreading. It's it's spreading the message in ways that we never would have thought possible, you know, 10 years Mm -hmm. ago. So um, back to that, that very original question that you ask people, I, 
you know, clearly I love the question. So <laughs> as, as dietitians or, or coaches or therapists, do you think that's the kind of question that can be really great to take into practice? Absolutely. I actually, most of my initial sessions, I will ask that question. And, you know, a lot of my clients come from the podcast. So I <laughs> often will say like, yeah. well, you know how we're going to start because yes. this is like an episode of Food Psych. And I think people sort of get a kick out of being able to be interviewed uh, yeah. in a way, you know, if they've listened to a lot of my episodes before, it's like, oh, now I'm in the hot seat. You know? um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's, very informative and helpful to working with clients because as dietitians, I think we're sort of the, um, sometimes, especially with eating disorder work, we get kind of put into this role of like the mother almost or the nurturer. There's something about being the person responsible for the food that often really hits at a deep place for people. And so I think kind of understanding like, where is the person coming from in their relationship with food? What um, traumas might they have had or ruptures in their relationship with food need to be addressed and what do I need to be mindful of as a provider so that I don't sort of push on that inadvertently or yes. you know if it does come up in some way in our sessions how can I reflect on that in a way that's going to help people so I really think it's it's powerful and helpful to get like a rich history like that from someone and you know oftentimes I'll take copious notes in those first sessions on yes. what they've told me about their relationship with food and then you know several sessions later kind of reflect back and make a connection that you know I'm so glad I was able to to kind of hold on to that information because it comes up it you know it's mm. it's so infused in in how people relate to food in their bodies today. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's important as clinicians for us to get that information from people. And most of our clients will never have been asked a question like that. Won't have an, will never have had an opportunity to tell their story in their words from their perspective without having somebody um, maybe analyze or interpret or maybe um, um, argue against, you know, mm. um, or say, oh, I didn't say that, or that didn't happen, or um, I don't remember that, or, you know, maybe from a therapist perspective, you know, jumping in and, and analysing. So to give somebody mm. the space to tell their story in their own words is actually, uh, I personally think it's a huge gift. So, um, mm. yeah, thank so you. That's, that's why really I love, yeah, yeah, it's nice way putting it. So I have to ask, Christy, do you secretly have a favorite guest from your podcast? Oh, boy. I, it's, uh, yeah, probably an open secret, I guess, that there are some episodes that I just love to death. I mean, I really love them all, and I feel like every guest has brought such different uh, perspective and energy to the table. But yeah. there's a couple of people who really sort of, you know, the the fan favorite episodes that are my favorites, too, that have sort of just been... Um, instrumental in changing the direction of the podcast. And I think the, the biggest um, one of those is probably Isabel Fox and Duke's oh, yes. first episode and, and also her second episode too, which is amazing and sort of builds on the first. Um, because when I spoke with her, I was working in the eating disorder recovery field as a dietitian and do you know, reading the research and going to conferences and sort of immersing myself in um, what was considered best practices for treating eating disorders and was getting a sense of, oh, this health at every size approach and weight neutral, non-diet, intuitive eating really is best practices. And that's what we need to be sort of aiming for in all of our work. And 
that was, it was very academic. Like the places I was getting that message from were very, you know, journal articles and, um, you know, colleagues or mentored conferences and stuff. And it wasn't like in the mainstream. It wasn't in my um, sort of online life or my, you know, outside of, outside of work life, really. Mm-hmm. Um, that message wasn't, wasn't coming across. And so when I um, first connected with Isabel Fox and Duke and I heard her sharing these messages of health at every size and body acceptance and body positivity, you know, as a person of a younger generation and doing it in a way that was really popularizing those um, topics and not, not so academic and not from a place of like, you know, over here in our little silo of eating disorder yes. clinicians, but more like yeah. blowing it up, you know, like, sh- like for the masses, this is what, yes. this is what needs to happen. You know, that really um, rocked my world and sort of changed the direction of the podcast because I realized, oh, wow, I could, I could join this. I could be a part of this movement to spread this message and popularize it beyond these sort of academic circles. Um, so that, that first episode that she did, um, episode 34, was really seminal, I think. And then she came back on to talk about emotional eating, and we had this amazing, far-ranging conversation about social justice and, um, you know, just so many different aspects of body positivity and diet culture that, you know, I just love talking with her and could talk with her forever because she's so passionate about these issues and so knowledgeable. Um, and another guest actually that was a very, I had a very similar experience with was Virgie Tovar, mm. who's coming back on the podcast soon for a round Woo! two. And I can't That's wait. Yes. <laughs> I was just re-listening to our original episode today to get ready. And I was like, so excited because um, so many of the issues around fat acceptance and social justice um, that, I, that have really influenced the direction of my work in the years since I recorded that first episode with her were present in that episode and, you know, really sort of set the stage for, for where I went from there. So, yeah, those are a couple of my favorites. Um, a recent favorite was Alan Levinovitz, who was oh, kind of a, yes. a sleeper hit. Like, I, yeah, oh, he's yeah. amazing. A religious yeah. scholar um, and the author, author of the book, The Gluten Lie. And I was sort of like, when I reached out to him, I was like, he's got such great anti-diet messaging, but he's not in the anti-diet world. He's a religious scholar and I don't know quite what to expect in talking about him. So sometimes when I have guests like that who are not like in the body positive movement already, I have to be, I'm, I'm a little careful and I'm sort of ready to edit, you know, as needed if they say anything that could be triggering to people. But I was so amazed and like pleasantly surprised by just how on board he was and how much he got it um, in that episode. And just there are just so many gem quotes that came out of that and the discussion was so rich and really just informed such a different aspect of um, diet culture that I hadn't really thought about in such depth before. Yes. I, I love those two different, um, t- t- the two particular types of podcasts you do that I absolutely love are the ones that really bring out the fire in me. So people like, uh, people like Vergie and Isabel, it's like, yes, I am in this crowd and I love it. I'm so passionate about it. You know, that really, that, um, you know, when our messages are being pushed back against or when we're being questioned or when we're being invited to, um, you know, speak about um, intuitive eating and, and health at every size, that we can do so knowing that we're not alone. And then there are people, you know, around us and beside us that are just, you know, incredible and really supportive. So that's kind of one group. And then can I just say, 
I loved that interview with Alan Levinovitz. I loved it. Because mm, thank you. It was just not only did you do an amazing job, but um, I think it just it encouraged me to think about things in a slightly different way, and that sense of um, that sense of expanding your mind is really I find it really rewarding it must be something about my brain <laughs> that I find <laughs> it really I have this intrinsic reward system that really likes new information um, mm -hmm. so I just Same here actually do you yeah 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 um, and I've actually spoken with quite a number of people since that interview and we've all felt exactly the same way it's like I, I it was something that I knew about roughly but to be mm -hmm. able to put it into words and then to be able to construct it in a way that was just so beautifully expressed so I've sent so many people back my clients um, my family my friends to go and listen to that to go and listen to that recording because we all are kind of um, we're all observing this kind of religious fervor around food and to then be able to bring it back to um, what we understand not only from an academic sense but also what we're observing in our community in our wider community um, and to be able to make sense of it because there's this part of I'm not sure about you but there's this part of me that I get annoyed with this the religiosity mm -hmm. And so to be able to understand it more, it gives me a, a sense of compassion so that when I do get annoyed or upset, <laughs> that I can come at it from a bit more of a strategic point of view, I guess. Absolutely. That's exactly how I feel too. It's like given me this sort of additional layer of compassion and perspective on, because like I just said, you know, we don't humans are so adaptive and we don't do anything that doesn't work for us in some way, right. Or serve some purpose. That's right. And we're not, we're not just picking it out of a hat or just being, you know, crazy about it. Like there's a reason that we get attracted to these types of things, whether it's eating disorders or diet culture. So it kind of just illuminated that for me too, like this, this diet culture stuff that I'm always so mad about and that, you know, there really are um, these sort of nefarious forces or I guess just large corporations making billions of dollars, right, on, mm -hmm. on selling us diets that, that are so frustrating and that, you know, justifiably I'm angry at. But, like, I'm not angry at the people who are buying into it or the people who are maybe purveyors of it that don't understand what they're doing and don't, you know, haven't questioned it but are just following, like, a religion, right? And uh -huh. it's, it's doing – it's working for them. It's, it's giving them something. Uh -huh. um, and I think that that episode with Alan really helped me illuminate, like, all the different things that – diet culture gives us that are sort of standing in for how religion used to organize, um, collect, you know, our collective lives. And, and that is very important to people actually. Yes. Yeah. So it's important for us not to seem like we're ripping, ripping the um, rug out from underneath people, but to understand where they're coming from and what they're getting from maybe the, the groups that they're connecting in with, um, whether that's online or, um, or in person. And, and probably there's something important that we can learn from, from that, that actually people need to feel a sense of belonging and they need to feel a sense of connection. And, and certainly even us as dietitians, I feel so much stronger speaking out because I know I have this incredible group of non-diet, health at every size colleagues around me who will have my back when I'm when I'm feeling, you know, a bit anxious or where I'm feeling vulnerable or you know, it's important to us too. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, there's still so much in the medical community and in the sort of larger culture that um, downplays or pushes back against any body positive message, any health at every size message, right? We can feel really adrift and, you know, Mm. criticized and sort of um, like question ourselves doing this work if we don't have a community behind us. If, and, and I think we all need places to go to vent about it too. You know, yes. I, I definitely <laughs> still find myself getting, you know, triggered by um, people's like negative comments or um, just really angry by about, you know, somebody's feedback or somebody's way of interpreting health at every size and body positivity that I can see is so clearly not, you know, and I need a place to put that and to talk to other people and be like, yeah, right. Isn't this ridiculous? Like, what are they doing? You know, Mm -hmm. and, and get that sort of, um, energy restored, get my, get my, um, you know, like bolster my sense of agency or or, um, efficacy in doing this work. So, yeah. Yes, and we are in an interesting, um, an interesting professional culture. So, as dietitians, um, you know, clearly there are there are some of us who are well. We're all trained in a weight based paradigm, and I'm assuming mm-hmm. that you were too. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and it's still the dominant paradigm that I think most most dietitians are trained in today. I mean, certainly Mm -hmm. there are some teaching programs which have um, some health at every size. Maybe it's a guest lecture, maybe two hours, maybe Mm -hmm. more. If you're super lucky, you'll be in a program taught by Dawn Clifford or Michelle Naaman Morris or someone like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly in Australia, we're chip chipping away at at the universities to just offer students an opportunity to to hear about, um, you know, this um, wellness, wellness, not weight-centered way of working with people, um, but you know, the, as you know, you know, our our professional um, culture is very diverse in its in its um, approach to uh, bodies. I suppose you'd say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, how would you answer this question. Now I know what you're going to say, but I'm. But I, I think it's. I think it's a. I think it's really interesting to have a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. So if I said to you, "Can I do? Can I do weight management and help people lose weight as well as doing health at every size or non-diet approach, intuitive eating, whatever kind of terminology that you would like to use in your practice? Is that poss- Is it possible to do both? No, it's it's really not possible to do both, and. I think, yeah, people, of course, want to um, offer what what the masses want, right? What's going to bring people in the door? What's going to bring clients in the door? And it seems mm-hmm. like clients want weight management and weight loss, right? And so maybe there's a way to do the health at every size and intuitive eating work with the people who are recovering from eating disorders or, you know, there's a subset that really needs it, but there's these other people who, you know, don't have an overt problem with with you know, their relationship with food. And so maybe those folks can do weight management. And unfortunately, there are just so many reasons why that doesn't work. Like we just can't straddle the line like that. One being that 
weight management does not work. We have lots and lots of evidence showing that people end up regaining all the weight they lost on diets, if not more, most of the time it's more, um, and that weight cycling leads to worse health outcomes than just staying at the same weight over time, even if people were at a higher weight to begin with. Yeah. If they you know, lose and regain, lose and regain, lose and regain, that's causing more inflammation, putting more stress on the body, and ultimately you know, is associated with a lot more um, chronic disease outcomes than if people had just maintained their weight and worked on having a nice um, intuitive and connected relationship with food in their body in the first place. And we also know that weight stigma has a huge association with all these negative health outcomes and that, in fact, the stigma of living in a larger body could explain most or all of the... Um, you know, additional health risks seen in people with larger bodies. So when you really look at the research and start to kind of piece apart what we've been told about diets and weight loss versus what the, the sort of preponderance of the evidence really shows, it's clear that, you know, the weight management paradigm just isn't helping anyone. It's actually putting people's health at greater risk across the board. And of course, as dietitians, we don't have a Hippocratic oath like um, per se, at least in the U.S., there's it's not like you know medical doctors taking the Hippocratic oath of first do no harm, but that's really a, a, um, a, a sort of philosophy that informs everything we do, right? We all want to do no harm. We all want to help yes. people, and so if if we can really show people that actually you know the pursuit of weight loss and recommending weight management is doing harm mm-hmm. and help dietitians really understand that and really go through the process of, you know, fighting it and challenging the science and, you know, getting angry maybe at the person who told them that weight management isn't going to work, but maybe Mm -hmm. ultimately getting angry at, um, you know, the lies that they've been told about it. That is ultimately going to lead to more effective, less harmful, um, care and outcomes in our profession. And so, you know, it's not just people with eating disorders who need a health at every size, intuitive eating, non-diet approach. It's really everyone. And pretty much everyone has some sort of disorder relationship with food, whether it's clinically diagnosable or not. There's some research showing that 75% of women in the U.S. at least have either disordered Mm. eating or a full-blown eating disorder. And so... When you think about that, you know, and there's other research showing like 45, I think it's, it's 45 to 55% of people who come through your door um, seeking weight management actually have some sort of disordered eating going on. Mm-hmm. So if you're sort of taking it at face value and being like, okay, this person says they want weight management, let me help them with that. You might actually be colluding with their eating disorder and making it worse. Mm-hmm. And you know, I say that from a place of great compassion and having gone through it myself, as so many of us in this um, in this field have, because we were really, you know, raised and brought up in the traditional weight paradigm where we were mm-hmm. taught in, in school to become dietitians. Like this is, you know, how you make someone lose weight and, you know, prescribe a lower calorie diet and prescribe this much exercise. And, you know, we go out into the world and some of our first jobs doing that and thinking we're doing the right thing. And then we have to reckon with the fact that we might actually have harmed some people earlier in our careers mm. because we were working within that traditional weight paradigm. And that that's hard. And that's, you know, I have a lot of empathy for that. And I have compassion for my past self having gone through that as well. Um, 
But I think we need to fight to create a culture among dietitians where people don't have to go through that, where we yes. don't have to experience the pain of realizing we've done some harm in our career and just learn the health at every size way from the start, because then yes. that could have, all that harm could be avoided. Yes, I completely agree. There's certainly been, I've certainly had to take the time and space to have a significant amount of compassion for myself in terms of what I did and what I said and um, what I was promoting earlier on in my career. And I I don't really, like you say, I don't really want other people to have to go through that whilst understanding that naturally we all, we all come from our own our own um, our own backgrounds and our own ways of being in this in this culture and certainly a lot of people come into dietetics you know we come into our studies maybe with a disordered relationship with food mm -hmm. ourselves and to have the opportunity to and space to be able to question and heal that um, before we head out into the workforce, ideally, or um, maybe as maybe as early on as possible, is just I think everybody deserves that opportunity. I agree. I completely agree. And I, I think yeah, it's it's very natural for people to be attracted to the field who have their own disordered or complicated yes. relationship with food. Right? It's um, sort of par for the course. And I think in many industries that is the case. So we're not alone, you know, as dietitians and having that um, kind of impulse for going into the field. But I think more needs to be done in our field to help dietitians who are struggling in their relationship with food and maybe early, you know, get some early intervention while still in school rather than yes. having to go out into the workforce and try to, you know, do this cognitive dissonance thing of like teaching yes. people how to have a healthy relationship with food while still struggling ourselves, which is very hard to do and, and can cause a lot of shame and secrecy as well. Um, you know, yep. so, and I think therapists, I think psychotherapists have some, you know, could maybe that, that field of psychotherapy could sort of be a model for how to do it as dietitians, because I think a lot of programs, trainings for psychotherapists require therapists to go through their own therapy and to do some work on um, counter transference and what mm -hmm. comes up in their relationships when they're sitting with clients, what, what that brings up for them and have mm -hmm. a place to process that. And in the US, at least, I don't know how it is in Australia, but here we, dietitians are not required or it's not even sort of a um, you know, best practices across the board for dietitians to get professional supervision where they can kind of work out some of that countertransference stuff. It's considered best practices in the eating disorders field, but that's such a very tiny percentage of all dietitians. And so, so many dietitians, I think, are, are working with people and getting things stirred up about their own relationships with food and have nowhere to take that and nowhere to process that. And that can be a very lonely and isolating experience. Yeah, no, exactly. It's exactly the same here in Australia, Christy, where, um, yeah, supervision isn't, isn't mandated. Um, however, it's very um, well accepted and, and, and definitely promoted within the eating disorder professional community, just not so much in the wider community. So we have um, a wonderful uh, dietitian here who's also um, a, a therapist as well. She's a, a, mm -hmm. a counsellor, a therapist called Tara McGregor. Um, and she's so wonderful. She's like our version of Molly Kellogg, basically. That's the, um, that's the best way I can describe mm. her. Or Dawn, Dawn Clifford is probably 
um, maybe a, a you know a good a good example. So, and she's mm-hmm. she's super wonderful. And um, she and myself and another dietitian last year completely rewrote all our supervision guidelines. So, mm-hmm. Aussie dietitians who are listening, go and check those out. They're on the DAA website. Um, and That's awesome. Yeah, it's really good because we we really want um, all dietitians, particularly those in private practice, regardless of your area of speciality or care, to be able to get good access to insight-oriented reflective space. Absolutely. It's so important. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate that, you know, we have to pay for it out of our own pockets, right? And it's it's such an investment and it's kind of a privilege to be able to do it. But I think it is such an important part of doing this work and really even to, you know, not only to kind of keep your clients safe, but also keep yourself safe. Yes. You know, in doing this work both it also contributes to, towards our longevity i would say um both <laughs> both in mm-hmm. terms of life but in terms of career i think you know um i'm i'm honestly not too sure about the stats in um in terms of who who discontinues their their dietetic career but i can imagine it might be fairly substantial i agree yeah i i feel like I know so many stories of dietitians who burnt out or burnt out on the one-on-one work anyway. Yes. And I've certainly felt that a little bit myself as well. I mean, mm-hmm. it is hard work. It's hard to sit with people, especially, you know, clinically severe eating disorders. It's, it, you need a lot of self-care to be able to continue doing this work. Yes. So it's, I think, yeah, I can't recommend supervision highly enough. Absolutely. And I guess if, you, if you're thinking about self-care, you know, not all of it is, is uh, free, unfortunately. And I often say to people, the hours that I spend in supervision, are, I, I think they're my best investment because I take my shit there. Like it's, it really is. I find it highly therapeutic and it then it's then I'm then able to translate that into having more energy and space and more um, skill for my clients as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think so many different aspects of self-care are important, you know, Mm -hmm. from getting enough sleep and taking breaks and feeding ourselves well, you know, giving ourselves the nourishment we need and not just powering through seeing Mm -hmm. clients back to back to back, you know, like take time for a snack, take time to get outside and go for a walk. All of that stuff is, Mm -hmm. is super important too. Mm, Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Completely, completely. We have to fill our own cups first. Mm-hmm. Like, totally. Exactly like we're telling our clients, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we got to model. We got to practice what we preach. You Absolutely. Ah, oh, the parallel process. Mm-hmm. Oh, so annoying, but so relevant. <laughs> <laughs> really is. It really is. Uh, yeah. And especially for those of us who, you know, are healing from our own disordered relationships yes. with food or body shame. Like I definitely, you know, my own experience, I feel like I was recovered, but not, um, as attuned to self-care and all the ways mm. that the the sort of, you know, restrict my, my eating disorder was really the restrict binge cycle. And that cycle played out in my life in various other arenas too, you know, like restricting my access to breaks and self-care and then sort of feeling like I needed to binge on that and like not do anything, you know, sort of like having to take a personal day from work or, you know, things that where it was like all or nothing and I wasn't Mm. sort of building it in along the way Um, or just, you know, sort of little ways that, that, that 
process of, you know, not feeling like I deserved care or um, could afford to take time out for myself or that I was having to live for other people all the time. You know, it's, it's come up in various arenas of life. And I think that working in the field really shed some light on it for sure. Like certain personality types that I would get really pulled in to the work with and sort of like neglect my own needs and give, give, give. And, you know, that has really helped in my life in my sort of overall like spiritual recovery mm. of you know how to be a whole person and, and take care of myself first like so I really appreciate what working in this field has shown me about myself even if it hasn't always been easy oh yeah I love that I, I think that if we're able to have that space to reflect on our own experience it can enrich us in ways that we never expect you know mm-hmm. um so you i mean you've mentioned several times about your own your own history and there'll be lots of people not only not only listening but also you know that will know other colleagues who have struggled with maybe an eating disorder or or disordered eating and my my understanding is that there are some mixed thoughts or mixed perceptions when it comes to you know having your own complicated history with food eating and 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 your body um can you tell us a little bit about what value you feel it has added to your to your career yeah i think you're right it's it's definitely a mixed bag, mixed bag. and it can yep. be mm-hmm, and it can you know i think it's really important to be in a solid place yourself when doing this work, you know, if at all possible, mm-hmm. I know sometimes people get into situations and don't realize until they're there that something's going on for them. So mm-hmm. of course I have mm-hmm. a lot of compassion for that, but I think it's, it's really important to not um, be struggling in your own relationship with food when you're trying to help others heal. I think that, that energy just comes across and, you know, so many of our clients are such sensitive people, they can pick up on it. Right. And yeah. we don't want to sort of give out this energy of um, talking out of both sides of our mouth or something. So I think it's, it's very important to really, like you said, fill up your own cup first, work on your own relationship with food and heal that before, um, before starting in the field. But I think it's also, or before, you know, working consistently in the field, I guess. Yes. Um, But I think it's also given me a perspective on what people struggle with. That's, you know, so much more felt than having to just know, you know, it's not, it's not knowledge, it's intuition. Mm -hmm. I feel like it has really informed my intuition about what might trigger someone or what, you know, with a podcast too, it's like, I've evolved so much in, in what I say and share um, since first starting and sort of getting this awareness of, oh, these types of messages can really, um, have unintended consequences and set people back. And I I know that from a felt experience as well because of what I went through. So, you know, I'm just going to be really sensitive and mindful of anything that could potentially trigger people. Um, And so I think it's, you know, it's helped me to empathize a lot. It's helped me to really consider my language and my messaging in a way that is um, ultimately helpful to clients. Mm. And I think it, it also you know, just sort of keeps me um, in a compassionate place for them. Like when, when I, you know, I'm so far out from the worst of it now, it's been like more than a decade since I was really struggling, but I feel like, you know, that compassion will always be with me, like to, to not get too, um, too far away from it that I can't kind of remember and feel what that feels like for someone to be going through it. Um, Which I think, you know, gives me a sense of 
um, like safety for people, like that they can really feel safe that they know someone has been there and, and has gotten to the other side. And also I think it, it, it's, you know, hopeful and inspiring to people mm. to see like, here's someone who did struggle and who now has a really good relationship with food and a good life. And, you know, has, it seems to be as together as possible for a young adult, <laughs> whatever <laughs> yes, that means. Yes. Like, um, but you know, like that it's possible to move on and that there are other things in life than food and exercise and you don't have to be caught up in that forever. Yeah, I think that sense of holding hope is is really fantastic and it doesn't always have to be us. It can be um, other people as well. But I think if we're being really authentic with our own experience and where we use our wisdom when it comes to who, when and why we would share that story with other people, I think it's an incredible, I really genuinely think it's an incredible gift to be able to share with others um, our own experience and to and to role model um, and to role model that that process of healing totally I agree I think it's you know uh, a real gift to be able to um, have lived that and to, uh-huh. to embody that but I think it is you know important to to heal your own self first and also not to reveal anything or Mm. um, disclose anything just for the sake of disclosure, because I, I certainly had, you know, some missteps and learning experiences with that in the beginning where I felt like, you know, I shared too much on the podcast and then felt sort of a vulnerability hangover or (laughs) had people ask me things, you know, clients ask me things that I, about, something that I had shared on a podcast and I was like, oh, I don't actually feel super comfortable talking about this in a session, even though I feel comfortable talking about this publicly for some reason. It just feels, you know, too much, too, mm. too personal in mm. this context, right? And so sort of navigating that, like learning what, what I do want to share publicly and what I need to keep for myself for my own safety, you yes. know, my own strength. Um, and yeah, so I think, you know, for people, anyone listening who has that recovery history too. It's like, you don't have to disclose. Like there are people out there who decide to disclose and feel that it's helpful for their practice, but maybe have gotten there over a period of time. I certainly did not disclose at all for years before, you know, really giving it some thought and um, kind of considering the value that it could bring to people, but I'm not Mm -hmm. doing it for my sake, you know, I'm doing it for their sake or for Mm -hmm. how it might help them to hear something. Yes, particularly those people who are feeling quite isolated or who are who are really struggling. Um, yeah, feeling feeling alone and, and hopeless. Um, you know, to see other people, particularly people who they respect, um, having walked that journey, the J word, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, the path, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and that we're actually still human. We can actually still make mistakes as human beings Mm -hmm. Um, but it's possible to to make mistakes be human and have been through something really tough yeah and that is the human experience right we all are going to go through some tough stuff in our lives Mm -hmm. whether it's with food and body or anything else you know there's there's a lot of uh difficult you know journey ahead of all of us but also there's a lot of beautiful rewarding experiences as Mm -hmm. well. So I think learning to navigate something, you know, I feel like one huge gift of my recovery is that it taught me so much about other um, difficult 
things that I encounter in life, you know, now. Yes. And I think it's, it's really given me a lot of the tools to address those things that I never would have had before because I didn't grow up with them, you know? And, and mm-hmm. so I think when um, recovery is full and complete and um, supported, you know, and you're, you're given a lot of the, the right tools in recovery, I think it can be such a, um, a gift actually going mm. forward. Yes. Yes. Not something you would have thought at the time, I imagine, Christy. Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, and I do, you know, it's this this dance of thinking like, oh, I wish I could have saved my younger self some pain Mm. by not ever going down this road in the first place. Mm -hmm. But, you know, also I I needed to learn some of the lessons that I learned through recovery. So maybe it wouldn't have happened in that way, but it would have happened in some other way and and it Mm -hmm. needed to happen. Yes. And it's brought you to the place where you are now, which is, well, incredible. I've only known you personally for less than a year, but, you know, what you bring to this to this field is just so valuable. You're, not only your own personal experience, but also your, um, how do you say, maybe ferocity in terms of, <laughs> I just love ferocity and feisty. And that's probably why you and I, you know, have become such good friends because we share yes. a sense of, you know, wanting to get in there and um, we're not afraid to, um, you know, to give things a good crack. Um, mm-hmm. So on, on that note, um, you and I spent some time together in the US during a very tumultuous time around the mm-hmm. election. And I know that something that's really important to you, something that's very close to your heart, is how you bring politics and feminism into your work. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering if I, am, if I might invite you to speak a little bit about that either separately or together or because this is something that I'm noticing that we're, we're kind of yet to really embrace here in Australia. But I think it's, there's been a real acceleration of that in the States. So I guess I just want to um, invite you to share a little. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's such a great question. I think, you know, I've learned through doing this body positive work, that body acceptance is really a social justice issue. Mm -hmm. And it is so intertwined with feminism, because a lot of the forces in diet culture are forces of patriarchy and forces of oppression against women. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it happens for people of all genders, too. It's, you know, and especially the trans community, eating disorders are are much um, more prevalent than they are in in straight males, for example. But even, you know, straight males are having more and more pressure put on them to look a certain way and to diet and um, to toe the line with health culture. So it's not um, it's not a, a women's only problem. It's really an everybody problem. And it's a, it's a problem of lack of acceptance for um, different points of view and for diversity, right? Because size diversity is a natural fact of human existence. We exist, you know, the, the distribution of body sizes is on a bell curve and always has been, always will be. And so when we demonize cer- a certain you know, portion of that bell curve and we idolize another portion of it, we really are um, causing people a tremendous amount of pain and oppressing people as well and keep it, you know, it's a, it's a tool of oppression to um, tell people that their body size is wrong and to sell them diet culture. And it's a way of keeping people from standing in their true power because if we're Um, so busy thinking about food and exercise and our body shape and size. We're not thinking about 
you know, the social justice changes we could make and wanting to take up space and wanting to have our voices heard, whether that's people of color, people of size, people of, you know, non-gender conforming folks, women in a patriarchal culture, you know, all of these um, marginalized groups, groups that are not given a voice. And it's sort of in the interest of patriarchal male culture to keep these groups oppressed because, you know, and, and this is where it intersects with politics and in the United States, I mean, hopefully I'm preaching to the choir here with, with Australian <laughs> listeners, understanding that yes. what just happened in our election is, um, is heartbreaking and is such a, there's so many retrograde forces in, in play in the U S that, elevated this person to the highest office in the land. And, you know, his motto, make America great again, is really harking back to a time when, you know, it's like the 1950s when um, black people didn't have rights, when women didn't have many rights, when, you know, people, gay folks were not able to come out of the closet. There were laws on the books, you know, criminalizing homosexuality, like people of so many diverse identities and backgrounds that have fought tooth and nail for the last, you know, five decades to get more and more equal rights in our society um, are being thrown back to a darker time to the, to the ages before those rights were secured. And, you know, to me, that the the retrograde um, element is is really is patriarchy's last gasp. Mm. Honestly, I think that I think that this um, there's no it's no coincidence that in a time when so many rights have recently become um, secured and become the law of the land, like gay marriage and um, you know women's rights are becoming even more uh, sort of in the public eye, like that there's this element in society that wants to take it back to a time when only white men had power, when, you know, patriarchy was really the law of the land. Mm. And so I think, you know, it's, it's all of a piece, like oppression based on size, discrimination based on body shape and size or color and gender. It's all part of the same thing, which is, you know, people needing to be accepted and have rights and be seen for who they are mm. versus, the elements that want to, you know, keep them in their place so that their privilege will not be unchallenged. Mm. So that's kind of a, a roundabout, I guess, way of discussing it. But um, yeah, it's just, I think, you know, we can't ignore that body positivity is a social justice issue, that health at every size and um, non-discrimination, fat acceptance are part of a larger movement to, um, you know, create justice for people of all shapes and sizes and mm -hmm. types and identities and that we have to keep doing this work and that, you know, our work on, on body size is not unrelated to um, work on ending racial discrimination or right. discrimination based on sexual orientation. And yeah, so I yeah. kind of try to remind people of that in my work and mm -hmm. make those connections because... A, I think it's really helpful um, for people who maybe uh, I see a lot of clients living in New York City who are very social justice minded and are, are you know, doing some clients that are like doing anti-racism work or doing work to secure rights for women and, you know, people who are really committed to these social justice issues and really get it. And yet on the 
subject of body size still feel tremendous amount of shame for their own size mm. or still feel, you know, really are bought into diet culture and to sort of illuminate the, the social justice elements of size acceptance is so illuminating, you know, so is so um, important for people's recovery and, and sort mm. of being able to see that it's oppression, just like these other areas of oppression that they're working to fight against, you know? So I think it's, it's hugely healing for people to understand that. And I think it's also um, just necessary work. And I don't want people getting into health at every size and body positivity from a place of like, well, this is, this is good for me, but not yes. for those people over there, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's not authentic. That's not real body positivity. That's not what it's about. It's not about um, justice for, you know, curvy sizes up to a certain point, but mm -hmm. still, you know, those people are too big and they mm -hmm. need to lose weight. Like, no, it's, it's for everyone. Health at every size is for everyone. And yeah, so that, I think that's why politics has to be integrated into this, into these discussions. Yes. I, I just agree. I was just nodding and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> with everything you were saying. And it's interesting because dietitians, I believe, are in a very, very good position to be social justice advocates. Um, and it might not be something that we think we've signed up for. It's like, oh, health at every size, non-diet approach, that sounds really nice, do no harm, la, la, la. And I don't mean that to be facetious. I'm actually thinking that for a lot of dietitians, it actually does sound... Um, wonderful because it is um, but also if we ignore the advocacy and social justice um, aspect of this way of working with um, with clients and groups and communities and we're kind of missing what I believe really is the is the very core of it um, so I'd be interested if you were if you were in charge of a social justice unit at a teaching university for dietitians what would you like to see um, what would you like to see in that teaching unit? Mm, that's a great question. I would like to see, um, I guess, first of all, recognition of size diversity and, you know, the importance of um, not shaming people or pushing them to fit into a size that's unnatural to them, mm. really celebrating the fact that there is this diversity of sizes that exists in the world and not pathologizing it and helping people um, pursue health in the bodies that they have right now, as opposed to having to change their body in the name of health, because mm -hmm. we know that that doesn't work. Um, and I think connecting it as well to, you know, reminding people, I guess, that this is not just for young white women who are often the poster children of eating disorders, right? We were talking a little bit off mic about like adolescent anorexia as sort of the, um, yes. you know, the, the Uber eating disorder, the thing that people picture when they think of eating disorders or whatever. But, you know, it's not just that, that eating disorders can happen to people of all shapes and sizes mm -hmm. and nationalities and ages and ethnicities and um, that it's, it's not limited to one group of people but it might manifest in a different way in different groups of people. Mm -hmm. And that the beauty ideal that's sold to everyone is a very white supremacist beauty ideal. It's, mm -hmm. it's elevating um, a certain type of white woman's body to 
kind of the apex of beauty and desirability and, you know, what happens when people don't fit that mold, not only size wise, but also ethnically and, you know, gender wise and sexual orientation wise, right? It's, it's, you know, that, that sort of the pursuit of that beauty ideal is harmful to people on so many levels. And so kind of just, opening up the conversation, having some difficult conversations about what it's like for people in different intersecting identities, right? Like mm. a larger bodied woman of color, for example, or a trans person of, of color or, you know, people who have um, various identities that they belong mm -hmm. to that also intersect with diet culture and size discrimination mm -hmm. and understanding that, you know, we can't, speak about it from a place of, of like white supremacy anymore. We have to open up to and acknowledge these different identities. And that can take the form of, I try to say in the podcast all the time, like people of all genders rather than men and women, because there aren't yeah. just men and women, sure. you know, there are people of, of all different gender identities or, um, you know, just bringing, bringing folks of different marginalized groups into the discussion. And I would also, if I were in charge of that department, like hire a bunch of kick-ass people from all these yes. different identities, you know, yes. to give, give voice and representation to um, those different identities, because I think that really enriches um, any environment, you know, to have diversity is so important in, in developing any policies and any programs, like we need diverse voices weighing in to say like, hey, this doesn't actually work for me, and here's, here's why, and that might be something that I never would have thought of, because I'm a white lady. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah. <laughs> so could I could I come and run a workshop in your unit? Is that okay, Christy? Oh yes, please. please do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I would as you were talking, I was like, ooh, if I was to run a workshop in Christy's social justice for dietitians unit, I would call it um, uh, facing difficult conversations with courage and conviction. Mm. One oh one. In it in an Aussie accent, insert swear words here. <laughs> oh that's great uh, I love it. How we do we really we need that right like how to face difficult conversations yeah because i think that's some of the that's some of the questions i get a lot from 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 fellow dietitians is um you know how do i have that conversation not only with my client but um but with um, other health professionals, um, mm. other, other colleagues, other people in my department, my boss, my manager, or my director—you know, my my more senior, um, my more senior dietitian—and um, then how can I? Something that I'm particularly passionate about is how can I, uh, quote unquote, coach my client to have those difficult conversations with their own family friends you know how can i expect my client to push back on a on a on a on diet chat in a cafe um if i can't if i'm not willing to do that myself mm, yes it's back to that practicing what we preach again right that modeling oh, yeah. of that old of thing. behavior <laughs> that old thing oh, walking the walk oh so my boring. god <laughs> But so important. We really do have to have to do that work. And it is messy and difficult and mm -hmm. it's not always easy. And, you know, I think also it? it's so incredible. Yes, it really is. It really is. And I think, it, you know, it's if you can open up someone's eyes or just plant a seed for someone who yes. wouldn't otherwise consider 
these these concepts that concepts that are so foreign in diet culture, like that's a win, but also acknowledging that we can't do unpaid labor all the time. And sometimes we need a break too. Right. And especially, (laughs) I mean, I've, I've heard this from like my friends of color too, that, you know, oftentimes people of color are called upon to do free labor for white folks, right. By being like, what is the black perspective on this? Or what do you think as a Latina about this issue? And it's like, Oh, I'm just tired. I want to like talk about TV or something, you know, I don't want to deal with this. And so sort of giving yourself um, that, that space also to just like take a time out and not have to always be an activist, not have to always be on all the time. Like we can't Mm -hmm. always be explaining diet culture and dismantling diet culture every second of the day. Mm -hmm. If we feel, you know, strong enough and in a good headspace and we're not like on our way, you know, running late somewhere, then yeah, let's have that conversation, you know, but also give yourself the compassion and the space to, to turn it off sometimes too. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, just um, being really authentic with your own energy levels and your own ability to, to <laughs> um, keep going and, and, the, and to recognize our own value as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, Christy, seriously, as um, as was evidenced by your podcast, we could talk forever. And, <laughs> and in fact, we have stayed up late many times, talk, talk, talking. And, mm-hmm. and later in the year, when I come back to New York for the Binge Eating Disorder Conference and the National Eating Disorders Association Conference, um, then we shall reconvene and yes. talk, talk, talk some more. <laughs> I cannot wait. And over wine or... Oh, of a, course. A meal, My gosh. Right? Of course. Snacks are plenty. Snacks yes. are plenty. Absolutely. <laughs> so looking forward to that. Um, so, Christy, of course, um, Food Psych is your podcast, which can be found across all platforms. Um, but ap- apart from Food Psych, let people know a little bit about what else you're up to, because I know you've got some incredible programs that are available for both professionals and, and, uh, and, and the community as well. And then and let us know where, uh, where people can find you. Yeah, sorry, that question got a little glitched. So do you want to? I'll start again. Cool. Thank you. So Christy, you, you, uh, we've talked a lot about Food Psych, your podcast, which is available across all platforms. So anybody who has not listened to Food Psych, then jump on it. It is, it is really incredible and you learn a lot about um, our fellow dietitians. Um, Christy has, has uh, interviewed lots of, lots of uh, colleagues, which is just really cool. I think it's really cool, as well as um, <laughs> other great guests. Um, so apart from Food Psych, I know that you've got lots of other things on the go which are available to both dietitians and to our community so tell us a little bit about where people can find you and what else you're up to yeah thank you so much um so my the hub of pretty much everything i do is my website christyharrison.com so you can find um, info about the podcast there of course but i also do an intuitive eating online course which is um, a 13-week course to help people make peace with food and learn to reconnect with their bodies and it's really informed by everything we've been talking about with health at every size and body acceptance and social justice so all of that stuff is sort of baked right into the course but it's it's about intuitive eating eating and working through the principles of intuitive eating. And um, so that's available at christyharrison.com slash course. And then I uh, do a little bit of one-on-one coaching as well, one-on-one intuitive eating coaching. I'm kind of uh, not taking on too many new clients at this point, but um, 
that's another aspect of my work. And then, of course, the podcast. And I also do some writing and journalism about uh, food and nutrition. So you can find that on my website as well. And uh, yeah, I just thank you so much for having me on the show. It's really an honor and a pleasure always to talk with you. Oh my gosh, yes. So the tables have turned today on you. And, uh, and it's been such a, an amazing pleasure to have you as my guest. Um, and I, I hope it was fun for you too, because you're used to being on the other side of things, aren't you? <laughs> yes, I am. It's totally <laughs> different experience to be on the mic, you know, to be in the hot seat myself. So it's always Absolutely. fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, have a great day, Christy. And I really look forward to chatting with you at the end of the year. Yay. Thanks, Fee.